0: You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always... Typical Lydia... Ho, ho, ho. Fuck. Today's episode, we're doing the 1974 Undisputed Slasher Classic Black Christmas for our Season's Grievings episode of the Dead Air Podcast. Wiggling my fingers. I know you're wiggling your
1: fingers. I can see that quite clearly. And I'm sure they can hear it. It probably transmits just fine. They have a perfect image of how fucking stoked you are to be doing a Christmas episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm surprised he's not wearing a Santa hat, guys.
0: Um, I forgot it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, but it is an absolutely perfect day. To do a Christmas episode. It's snowing. It's cold. We're all bundled up. We're in your creaky cavernous home.
1: It's freezing. I'm dying. I hate this. Yes. Yes, it is perfect.
0: <laughs> I'm happy. You're miserable. It's Christmas.
1: Sounds about right. Sounds about right. And you'll notice <laughs> I haven't decorated at all. Oh, yeah.
0: It's a little gloomy in here. That's fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I suppose you would be. When we're deciding what to do for our Christmas episodes, obviously, the first Christmas episode we did was last year, and obviously, I wanted to do Black Christmas, but it was in that time period where, oh, I don't know, Black Christmas, everyone talks about Black Christmas, and so we did Saint Instead, a fucking awesome movie, which I like very much.
1: Oh, it was super good, and there was a lot more excitement about Black Christmas last year, of
0: course. Mm Mm-hmm, and now, now, we get to do Black Christmas today. Right now. And we got to check it out on my absolutely fucking kick-ass Season's Grievings edition. Yeah, let
1: me say, it's not our Season's Grievings episode at all, Wes. You ripped that off blatantly from the cover of the box of the movie we just watched.
0: Well, yeah. But for those of you who don't know, and for so- obviously those deep in horror and collecting and, and, and shit like that, uh, uh Scream Factory, uh, uh, the Shout Factory is like a little like horror section of their distribution did a Black Christmas uh, collector's edition that came out this year. But last year, our dear friends at Rumorg magazine collaborated with Anchor Bay Release, and they did a really fucking kick-ass Blu-ray edition of this fucking movie. And what makes it even better, Rumorg's Canadian, Black Christmas's Canadian, it's Full of just the Rue crew doing a brand new documentary 40 minute documentary worth the price of admission right there plus you get to see the Black Christmas panel from 2014 on it and of course it's got all these other awesome special features it has poster art done by Gary Pullen ghoulish Gary himself so it's absolutely fucking across the bar Amazing.
1: We've got four examples of Ghoulish Gary artwork in this very house. You know that (laughs) it's awesome. Actually, I love his work, and I like the work that Roomwork put into that. Really, Mm -hmm. it is a chance for us Canadian horror fans to fawn over one of our biggest classics. It Mm -hmm. really is, Mm -hmm. and the artwork is impeccable. anyone even if you're not familiar with this collection you will have seen the season's grieving's artwork because it's got that iconic phone which has almost become the poster art go-to yeah. for this film when people are talking about it on blogs and stuff on the internet
0: mm-hmm. absolutely
1: good job gary yeah i like the little booklet that comes with it too i'm, I'm especially impressed with this particular release um it does have the collector booklet inside which is done in the style of the Rumorg library Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is just a really good example of wonderful horror journals really Mm -hmm. wonderful little booklets i am a reluctant collector of those for sure and i just love the style it's a really good example of magazine and journal style but with a nice horror look to it very good design to that all around
0: Mm mm-hmm Black Christmas is one of these legendary slasher films that we can hold our heads high because of the fact that it is Canadian. It's one of the in in the same vein as My Bloody Valentine, another holiday themed slasher. uh, That's part of the, the great Canadian tax shelter films.
1: Yeah. Super famous for being able to crank out all sorts of really cool and somewhat forgotten, like Happy Birthday to Me.
0: Yeah.
1: Kind of films that came out around that time
0: mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. another classic and oh one day one day we're gonna get the happy birthday to me
1: yeah no i keep planning on it. i was sort yeah. of that was on the list this year too for me but nah
0: yeah, yeah. maybe maybe next year Maybe next for my year. birthday
1: maybe for your birthday that sounds more fun because i do want to get back into clowns <laughs>
0: Uh, just before we get into any of this, there is a little something that I want to talk about. A certain little someone uh, released a little something on social media recently to tease us.
1: Yeah, Tomb Dragon Mirror, That ghastly thing. I know. I talked about it last episode.
0: No, 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 Lydia. Somebody is a writer of things and somebody had put out on Instagram and Oh, Twitter, Poppy Z.
1: Bright. Yeah, there's a new Poppy Z. Bright. It's uh, the collections of Dr. Bright. It's a... Is that him in the corner in New Orleans?
0: No, Lydia, I'm talking about you. Oh. <laughs> Pray Light Eve 2. We have a cover. We yeah, have a cover. We do. It's got a fucking purple spider on a it. A
1: purple spider. I know. I was all like, what do people think of first when they think of me and my writing? Purple spiders. Yeah. And totally,
0: yeah. the other thing that I think about, stories of the untoward.
1: Yeah, it's got a double the amount of stories that were in Prelight Eve One. Prelight Eve One is still available on Amazon, of course, in print and a Kindle. And Prelight Eve Two will be available shortly,
0: very shortly. Are you, are you you're doing the? Are you going the self-publication route? Yep. We, okay. Yep. Darn too. So, just decided to make things even harder on yourself.
1: Well, I did design the cover and the interior and like did the layout for the first Prelight Eve, so it's not completely removed is not out of my wheelhouse whatsoever so even though it had come out from horror moria it's this it's still a self-published work and really it's still a sub, self-published work so it's not a stretch for Prelative eve 2 to come out that way as well mm-hmm. so i'm really proud of being able to do that under my own name this time mm-hmm. even though it was nice to have sort of like an umbrella mm-hmm. over top of the last one mm-hmm. I still did all of the marketing and stuff myself, too, anyway, mm-hmm. though. So it's not really much different. It doesn't feel much different from my point of view. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. excited about that. And even when it comes to the second or third edition of Nightface Face that came out from Postmortem Press, I had done the layout and cover art for all of that as well. So it's, yeah, it doesn't feel much different than any other book I've had out.
0: Well, that's true. I mean, you definitely are the type of lady that likes to fucking hustle and do a lot of things yourself. Don't like to rip that control away from anybody. <laughs> it's not about that, really. No, i know. It's
1: mostly a time constraint. And a lot of times it's an antisocial problem, mm-hmm. too. Like not wanting to bother the people with my project and not wanting to take the time to have anyone else involved. Unfortunately, that's not the best way to go. I don't recommend it to most people. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> but I do recommend if you've got the wherewithal, if you've got the skills... If you're a quick learner, just do it. There's so many people out there that are sitting on some sort of art, music, writing, film, what have you. And they don't want to involve other people. They're shy about it or they have time constraints. And that's mostly what my problem is, is time constraints. Um, you know, do a little self-learning. YouTube will teach you everything you need to know for whatever it is you need to know to get your art out there.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. If you guys haven't checked out the the, the little reveal of the, of the cover, you guys should head on to uh at typical Lydia on Twitter just to check it out. It's a really classy book and uh I can't wait to read it. And uh if you guys fuck do yourself a favor, if you haven't gotten Prey Light Eve one of uh, the first, you can fucking buy it immediately. I don't even have a proper copy yet. Like I have... I've got a
1: few up there. I'll gift you one. It'll be my gift to you. Ooh. This Christmas season.
0: Ho 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 Wes. That's fucking amazing. Cause I have um I remember when you were doing a reading, you were handing out um samples yeah it looked so i have the sample book that i keep proudly on my shelf and i was like one of these days i gotta get a classy like official version of this but um yeah so definitely check that out and obviously when we have like a proper release date it's gonna be all in the show and maybe i can convince you to like maybe we could like read some stuff on the show because that's what i kind of want to do I
1: think I will. In the new year, I'll definitely look into doing that.
0: Yeah, we could maybe, if it makes you comfortable for it to be an episode proper, we can maybe do a little bonus episode. Yeah, I want
1: to do a bonus or just tack it on to the end. That's what I figure I'll probably do.
0: I don't know why I'm so bouncy. I think it's the coffee you gave me.
1: (laughs) I I did make some extra strong Christmassy coffee with a little bit of hazelnut and stuff going on in there. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: It was actually, But I fucking feel like, I'm fucking excited. You're excited
1: because it's a Christmas episode. I'm excited.
0: I'm bright-eyed and bushy tail for Christmas.
1: I'm excited because i think i've discovered the true story that this is based on so we can both be excited about different things
0: (laughs) when it comes to stories surrounding black christmas this was a movie that i always in my household thought of as one film this was the film that scared my father more than any other movie he would ever seen My dad was not a big horror guy. When he was a young man back in 1974, he went to go visit his brother, my Uncle Jack, over there in British Columbia, uh, going over to the island. Apparently, my Uncle Jack's friends had uh, a chicken coop. And the chicken coop comes into play because while they were all hanging out at this kind of rustic farm place, they decided to, oh, let's go take in a movie. So for some reason, they made the decision to go see Black Christmas. And it scared them so bad that at the end of the night, when they got home, they had to—someone had to go lock up the chicken coop. No one wanted to go out and lock the chicken coop. And my father apparently was the one that eventually had to go. He was just absolutely terrified to do it. And I think—I'm not exactly sure—but I think somebody actually had to go with them eventually so they could go lock up the chicken coop. And I was talking with my mother the other day because I wanted to make sure I had the details right. Because this was something that my dad talked about all the time. Was like Jesus, what the scariest movie I ever saw. Black Christmas. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That was uh, always, always, I wouldn't lock up that chicken coop. Nope. Nope. Jesus. Never seen anything like it. They must have
1: got thinking and talking about it after because if they went to the theater to see this in the broad daylight and That's came it. back and it still scared him that bad. And then years later still scared him mm-hmm. that bad. I'm just glad he didn't watch it in the comfort of his own home late at night.
0: Yeah. and But I think it's kind of cool is that back in 1974, this film came out in October. And so he was probably over there in BC – around the fall or early winter. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been the perfect time to go see a movie about a chilly Christmas murder spree. And so that's what Black Christmas always was to me. And I, over the years, I would always ask people of a certain generation, what do you think is the scariest film that you've ever seen? Not all of them will say Black Christmas. Some will toss out Alien. Some will toss out The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Films like that, even even a a smaller few might cite rosemary's baby but there's just enough people especially canadians mm-hmm. that will tell you black christmas is the scariest movie they've ever seen they can't believe it it was so scary it was so weird and it really really is an incredible accomplishment and what it's done for cinema for horror
1: I like how it's quotable amongst those that aren't even horror fans with the calls coming from inside the house, which mm-hmm. isn't even a direct line from the phone, no. but they got it close, right? Yeah. Um, but the calls are coming from inside the house. People will joke about that all of the time, but no one ever jokes about let me lick your pretty pink cunt. No. No one ever jokes about that, but it shows how fucking brutal this film really is.
0: This movie in terms of, you want to talk about, People talking about being shocked about what young little Reagan is saying in The Exorcist. I mean, Jesus Christ, like the stuff that this guy is spouting out over the phone is just as vulgar.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd seen it a long time ago and then, but rewatching it as an adult, I was still shocked all over again. I guess Mm -hmm. that it was within my milieu as a young teen, so it didn't shock Mm -hmm. me quite as much, but... As an adult, it seemed to shock me a little more because I had a better idea of what people could get away with in cinema. Mm -hmm. And it still seems like a little much for 1974.
0: Absolutely. But then again, films coming out around this time. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was coming right down the pipe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the same time. So the world was going to change in a very big way when it came to what was going to be this new Generation of horror. It had started with films like Psycho, and obviously we got to give props to films like Twitch of the Death Nerve, which we've covered on this show.
1: Twitch of the death nerve. <laughs> I was watching while we we're watching Black Christmas Four, Twitches of the Death Nerves, mm-hmm. as we know them, because mm-hmm. um, I sort of pecked on Psycho a little bit for the Twitch of the Death Nerve, because that's you know what i'd like to blame the twitching of characters who are supposed to be playing cadavers mm-hmm. and we have really good examples in this film of long shots with cadavers that mm-hmm. don't
0: move mm-hmm. that's one thing about the the actress that plays claire harrison not enough credit due to how tough we watch a lot of horror yeah. and one of the toughest things even old marion crane can't keep it together in Psycho, as well as Claire Harrison can for playing a dead body.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no eyes moving, no breathing, no nothing. And we have proof she's not breathing because we've got a bunch of plastic stuff in her mouth.
0: Yeah, blast a, like a big plastic bag over her head with plastic, basically inside of her mouth. And there's so much movement; she's getting rocked. The camera's spinning around her. There's no margin for error, and these shots. 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, no breathing, no eye movement, even the subtle twitching of the eyes that just we naturally do when we're keeping our eyes open and there's a lot of movement in front of us. Yeah, that telltale bag too. It does not move. No fog on the bag, nothing.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it was a dummy.
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. No way. I don't believe it.
1: Yeah. Some of the fun mysteries of this movie, people have, have dug around and even while we are watching this, I was looking here and there to see if anyone had ever figured out succinctly what true story this was based on because that's one thing that a lot of people would say is that this is based loosely on actual events. Um, and other people just won't believe it and they don't want to believe it. And then if they think about it, they're like, oh my God, I fucking hope not because the story as it is isn't based on a true story, thank God, because it is pretty fucking terrifying. But there were some murders in Montreal that could have definitely acted as fodder. And we'd have to ask to see if this is true. And I'd have to do more digging to see if anyone has ever found out definitively what case this was all based on. But the quite famous vampire rapist. Mm hmm did have murders in Montreal around the 60s. And this is apparently what it was based on, was some murders in Montreal before 1974. Wayne Bowden was the vampire rapist, and he was in Montreal around the late 1960s. He raped and killed four women, and it was around November to January Mm -hmm. that he had done these murders. It was not on Christmas proper. Mm -hmm. But he was called the vampire rapist because he was biting the victims. And leaving marks on his on their breasts and that's yeah, how he was eventually yeah. caught they took the bite analysis yeah. and pinned him for these murders
0: very severe bites too
1: yeah it's a it's a quite iconic case mm-hmm. um now, and even
0: one of the victims or or multiple victims were sorority uh members were they not yeah yeah and there's
1: many other serial killers that have attacked sorority girls yeah. definitely yeah. there's been sorority murders but it's those clues of this is based on a story that happened in Montreal, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, this is a Montreal murder of multiple girls and college and in the snowy winter time. And Bowdoin acted under the guise of a man named Bill. He would court his victims with an enigmatic charm, and their bodies wouldn't be found for days later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it's just all of those little things the fact that he was using the alias of Bill.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that he was mutilating these girls quite severely. Their bodies weren't found for a while. This was happening in Montreal in the snowy, cold winter. So all those things together just gel in my mind to think that this might have fed a bit of Clark's imagination. Mm -hmm. Now, as with things like how Ed Gein fueled Psycho in just subtle ways, and a lot of other killers fuel things like Thomas Harris' work and stuff like that, I think, it, I think it fits. I think it definitely fits. So anyone out there that is digging through Reddit and Snopes and wherever looking for the true story of Black Christmas and then deciding that there isn't one, I'm pretty sure The Vampire Rapist has a lot to do with it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you might be right about that one. Uh, speaking about influence of Black Christmas has, about starting, not starting the slasher cycle, but starting the film that started. The Slasher Cycle. It's no secret and horror aficionados will definitely know this brief story. It's a story that's told by one man and not really by another. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. Bob Clark maintains that a conversation happened between him and John Carpenter, where John Carpenter, who was fascinated by the film of Black Christmas, something that he has admitted in the past, Mm -hmm. and he had asked Bob Clark, would he ever be interested in doing a sequel? And if he did, what would that sequel actually be about? Bob Clark had said he kind of lost interest with doing a horror film. He did horror. It's done. He wants to do other things with his career. Other you?
1: Christmas movies. Other Christmas <laughs> movies, are like
0: a Christmas story. Something that is a little bit more cute and cuddly, although a little fucking weird too, but one of my favorites. He did, however, mention to John Carpenter, if he were to do a sequel, he had a vague idea. He had a vague idea about the killer being caught. And then a year later, around Halloween escaping and then continuing the kills that he had started in the first movie as this escaped mental patient. And he would have called the film Halloween. Now, obviously, Bob Clark even himself says, even even so, that is a very baseline idea that John Carpenter probably was vaguely inspired by a line description of a film. And then he goes and makes his own complete unique story that's 100% wholly his. But it does, according to Bob Clark, have a nugget of origin within Black Christmas, the 1978 classic that John Carpenter would make that officially started what people consider the golden age of slasher films.
1: And you take things like the killer point of view being used and even if you want to get really you know theorist here on the story of billy and agnes mm-hmm. it's what you could piece together that billy had killed his sister because a lot of the things that he's parroting are you left billy alone with agnes and he's seems to be fixated on this person agnes and he's killing women and he yeah. talks about agnes like it's his sister some of the fights that he's reiterating it seems mm-hmm. on the phone could be about a brother and sister mm-hmm. so you've got this murderous maniac that's fixated on killing women over and over playing the role of his sister agnes in his mind Mm -hmm. maybe it's a stretch but it is a guy that could be killing sister figures so Mm -hmm. you take all of that and it sounds a lot like michael myers my
0: favorite it does it does um and of course we know that this film and we know obviously how important halloween was and even though there are films that have done pov shots before
1: yeah and it's really popular in a lot of, like, Italian films and a lot of European films. Exactly. Sure.
0: And not to mention body count films that exist, like Twitch of the Death, Nerve, another a Jello, uh, that has some aspects of slasherdom in it. That's that-
1: how the Black Glove killer gets around, man. Yeah. Since you can't show him. You gotta no. look through his eyes. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Um, it's funny. As we were watching this film, I would like to... Uh, I was taking note of things that we associate with slasher films. And every time I noticed one... Or thought of one. I just wrote it down. So I'm usually a really bad note taker. Oh, he's horrible, guys. For our eraser head episode, I drew a picture of a chicken. <laughs> but not for this one. And I'm just going to laundry list these real quick. Yeah. Stop it. me. I will not. If you've heard this one. Probably. <clears throat> Holiday themes, POV shots, body count, multiple and varied instruments of death. Red herrings, ineffectual police, unknown killer, everyone's a suspect, body reveals, sweeping pianos, jump scares, veteran actors padding scenes for younger actors, scenes of violence with ironically cheerful or tranquil music, call is coming from inside the house, cops dead, lone female survivor arms herself and goes up the stairs instead of leaving, killer trying to break through a door, boyfriend suspect dies, false sense of security, one last scare. Think of every slasher movie that you've ever seen. Does any of this fucking sound familiar? Yeah, they pretty much just check off the boxes as they go. Exactly. The only thing this is missing is fucking, like, shower scenes.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It truly is missing a shower scene. Instead, we have a comedic house matron fishing booze out of the back of the toilet tank. (laughs) And I'm fine with that.
0: I love Mrs. Mac.
1: Yeah, Mrs. Mac's pretty
0: cool. And I like
1: the little legacy of Mrs. Mac as the McHenry sisters. Some of the the stuff that Billy introduces us to just by hanging out in the attic.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So what's this fucking movie even about?
1: It's the Ballad of Billy and Agnes, man.
0: <laughs>
1: I love Billy. I do love Billy. I feel for Billy. I feel deeply for Billy.
0: Billy may be one of the most frantic, unhinged, just fevered killers in this subgenre of horror. I'm trying to think of characters that match him or exceed it. Frank from Maniac comes close. Yeah. Because in the fevered pitches of murder, he is very frantic. We've seen killers that are beyond superhuman. We've seen killers stoic. We've seen killers angry. We've seen Fast killers and slow killers. We've seen all kinds of killers. We've seen killers that can't stand up for more than two minutes without tripping.
1: Characters that aren't afraid to sneak around a house and get to know it better than the people that live within it. Mm -hmm. Killers that um, enjoy using technology, because at the time that's what this would be. Mm -hmm. And... He really does rise above all of them with such small amounts of screen time. What little we get to know of him and see of him. We don't get a big backstory. We don't get any at all, really, aside from what he's saying on the phone. Mm -hmm. We barely get to see him at all. The only thing we generally really see is his hands and his eye. Mm -hmm. And that's really all that we know of Billy. Yet, Mm -hmm. he is probably the most terrifying killer that we've encountered.
0: When he is slamming against that door when jess is cradling that fire poker mm-hmm. the the ferocity that you see rivals anything that we've seen from prom night from the town that dreaded sundown to and just think name it it rivals it in just how fucking angry he sounds on the other end of that door how
1: dangerous how, he fucking is yeah like a wild animal yeah he is a lot like a wild animal Very, very, very scary. I would have loved to see a direct sequel of this. Like, Mm -hmm. really. I'd want to call it The Ballad of Billy and Agnes, like, quite (laughs) badly. Or a prequel. That would be a terrifying thing to see, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's almost better without... I think that it's better without knowing anything more about Billy. I think it's really, really, really tastefully done. And that's what makes it so fucking scary. Because you can picture that, even though the house is so grand, and even though the killer is so insane... You can sort of supplant that into almost any house, and you can take that killer psyche into almost any true crime story you've read. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is this story about? Billy, how he starts out by noticing a house.
0: Mm -hmm. It could be any house, but it happens to be this house. And with an amazingly effective, rough-looking POV shot, that was accomplished uh, with a very specific, special rigging that was kind of unheard of at the time. He enters this house at this jubilant celebration because it's the holidays, of course. And it's, as you had pointed out when we were watching this film, this isn't one of those Christmas killer movies in which it's Santa Claus running around with an axe.
1: Yeah, it's not Jack Frost either. There's not a lot of comedy to be had. No,
0: it's our favorite kind of holiday horror where it just incidentally happens to be taking place on Christmas.
1: Yeah. And that, in my mind, it's perfect in that way Mm -hmm. because what better way to celebrate the holidays by just having a regular old day that just happens to be Christmas. Mm -hmm. I like how this is just a regular old slasher film that just happens to be on Christmas. And that affords us some really interesting lighting, Mm -hmm. some, a little more uh, emotional fucking strings to pull maybe. And just a really cool angle of it being cold and snowy out.
0: Oh man, it doesn't look bitterly cold out.
1: Yeah, it does. And a lot of this happens late at night too, which makes it even worse. Because uh, Christmas can be hard for a lot of people, especially the nights. And if people are suffering bipolar and depression, which some of our lead actresses from this film have definitely suffered, the nights and holidays can be extremely hard. And it also feeds into the story of Billy. No wonder he's having such a horrible breakdown. Mm -hmm. I I really feel for Billy in this film.
0: I had a feeling you would.
1: Yeah, where it almost gets me in that same spot where the end of Halloween 2 gets me with Michael Myers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We meet our colorful cast of characters, which is just a bunch of beautiful women who are just getting ready to go home for the holidays. most Most of them seem to be going home.
1: Yeah, I think that's like the whole point of this party is to say for a while, have a little bit, a few drinks and stuff before they have to go to their parents and like not drink, I guess. But it sets it up really nicely in right away. It's going to be people are going to be in and out. There's going to be a whole bunch of noise. There's the phone's going to be ringing off the hook because it's the holidays and it's a sorority house. And these are all like young adult women. They're not kids anymore. So they've got their own separate adult lives, boyfriends in and out of the house. And the doors are going to be unlocked and people are going to forget to even shut the door because that's how busy a house like this, especially with a big mixed group of people, can get around the holidays. So it kind of sets us up and we have our defenses down. They have our defenses down. They have their defenses down simply because of what day it is.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that this is a fucking amazing backdrop to do this all on, and at the time it would have been so fucking subversive, maybe even unintentionally. Nowadays, like especially horror fans, we all love the subversion of like Krampus and and Black Christmas. I love horror on Christmas. You know that everyone likes to fly in the face of like tr- old traditions. But in 1974, even though that subculture definitely was there, burgeoning waiting for something to hold up and say, this is an example of what I like to do that's not like a Rankin and Bass Christmas special. So for the time, this film was incredibly progressive and subversive, clever. And what Bob Clark was doing was not so much creating a subgenre, because people who do this type of stuff, people who go into horror without tons of knowledge of the genre tend to make genre-defining films because they're not trying to break the rules of horror. They just don't really know them. And so they make a film that's a horror movie by their own sets of rules. And what Bob Clark inadvertently did was create a language for horror, a subgenre of horror, that people would follow forever, will continue to follow. And even if they're not directly Knowing that they're following it. Even uh, a director like George Michaela acknowledges the fact that he wasn't thinking of it at the time, but looking at Black Christmas, he can't entirely say that he wasn't influenced or at least seemingly influenced by this film, even though when he was making My Bloody Valentine, that wasn't top of mind. This film gets the ball rolling pretty quick. Once the men have left and it's just the sorority sisters all by themselves, we get a phone call.
1: Yeah, because the men have left. So the men start calling because they can't be without these wonderful women.
0: Something that I relate to. Let me tell you something. If I was Jess's boyfriend, I would be calling her all the time.
1: Yeah, totally. I would be calling her all the time, too. I mean, I really enjoy these. I hesitate to use the word scream queen because it's never really been applied to this particular crop of women. And Barbara Crampton, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it all over Twitter and Facebook and everything, she has some uh, thoughts on the term scream queen, which I totally 100% agree with her with and have been saying a version of what she has to say about it for years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. But,
1: you know, I don't recall that term being applied to these women. I think this film does elevate these women Beyond that entirely, and a lot of the roles held by quote unquote erstwhile scream queens in the past, mm-hmm. not including really be great actresses that do literally only scream. But a lot of these women in horror roles, especially lead actresses in horror roles, mm-hmm. just captivating wonderful women. And we meet Barb, Claire, Jess, and Fell all <laughs> together and very distinct personalities i really enjoy that very Mm -hmm. very much Mm -hmm. i also really enjoy jess's sweater
0: oh my goodness what is that even it
1: is the strangest thing and i would love to know more about this particular sweater and the choices behind it because it's not a typical ugly christmas sweater and if you want to see a great ugly christmas sweater Uh, Andy negative is wearing his patron saint of plague's Christmas sweater, which is like the best ugly Christmas sweater I've ever seen in my life. My Mm -hmm. God, Mm -hmm. I usually think they're the stupidest things in the world, but that one does win. Uh, but this one is what I think is a graphic representation. It's a black sweater with a white, two white hands Mm -hmm. crossed over top one. Mm -hmm. another, almost like someone's shielding themselves. They're about to get defensive wounds on their hands. That's what's kind of going on in their sweater. It's just two white hands. And in, in sort of like splayed out, like pushing you away. Very fucking strange sweater. Wonderful choice for a girl who's going to probably be in a stance like that before too long.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the blacks and browns and yellows that she wears that are so striking. I mean, good Lord. Jess is just my horror lady crush. Like, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I'm more of a Barb fan. Barb, played by the indelible... Margot Kidder Kidder, who most people would associate with the old Dick Donner Superman films. Yeah. But as as Lois Lane, the definitive Lois Lane, the one that everyone speaks to as that is their representation of the character. And even in that film, she she plays a like a, 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 a just like a fucking absolute force of nature very strong personality uh, woman and her playing Barb is amazing because it's like watching Lois Lane if all she was doing was drinking, (laughs) smoking swearing and talking about fucking.
1: Yeah constantly. It's it's
0: great it's fucking great. Margot Kidder brings so much to this fucking role and she is every time she's on the screen she's stealing every scene. And, and and not in a shitty way, it's just And that's also her character. She's a yeah. very
1: large loud character, unless she's passed out drunk. <laughs> Which is hilarious. At like
0: one PM. <laughs>
1: yeah. Everyone knows someone like that around the holidays. Mm-hmm. Everyone's seen someone like that around the holidays, and it sort of like transcends age. You know, could that could she could be channeling the spirit of a 15-year-old drunk on Christmas or a 55-year-old drunk on Christmas. Well, a 105-year-old drunk on Christmas. She just does it so very believably and so well. Um, you might recall her from Halloween too, as well. If we're going to yeah, just have yeah. a lot of Michael Myers love today. <laughs> she also recently won a Daytime Emmy for being in R.L. Stein's Haunting Hour.
0: Ooh. Yeah, so she L. just L. don't Stein.
1: stop. She no. just don't stop.
0: Why would you? Why would you?
1: Never never stop
0: this is one of those perfect examples of actors in a horror film that would one day go on to very big things huge things yeah everyone from uh, olivia Hussey, who becomes an award-winning actress to from andrea martin with from a massive career massive career sctv uh, like so canadian so hedwig and the
1: angry and she i kept expecting her to crack jokes not only being a kid that grew up in the land of sctv i have followed andrea martin loosely even though i'm not a comedy fan i'm Mm -hmm. an andrea martin fan though Mm -hmm. i guess uh i kept waiting for her to crack jokes and there were a few laughs to be had Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. with the search party men at the window Mm -hmm. that was about the most the closest to the andrea martin i know Mm -hmm. but to see her in a horror role it's like watching george went in a horror film from way back when
0: (laughs) that's a really good point absolutely and of course even at this time veteran actor john saxton just bringing all kinds of legitimacy to this very young cast that like who would have guessed that they would all have these massive careers Mm -hmm. and so what you're left with is this golden opportunity To have a director that knows what you're doing, a story that no one's really ever seen before, doing things in horror that no one's ever seen before, and actors that are going to do nothing but elevate every scene they're in, it's a masterpiece.
1: It clearly is. Well, one ringy dingy, two (laughs) ringy dingies, and it's the moaner, Wes.
0: Oh, God.
1: Got the moaner on the line for you.
0: Old Billy, with his, the interesting thing about his phone calls is, it is everything from incoherent garbling, pig noises, to it seemed almost like a very severe case of Tourette syndrome. Just saying thing, repeating things that they might have heard or, or something from their past that we just don't know. And it's not ever clear why this killer is making these phone calls except to intimidate and to try to express something. And that makes me first wonder, when Billy is not in Billy mode, (laughs) what do you think he might be like? Do you think he might be charming and easily able to converse? Or do you think he's quiet? Do you think he's shy? Does he look at his feet a lot? What do you think?
1: It's impossible. There are so many shades of psychopathy and abnormal psychology out there that it's just fucking impossible Mm possible he could never really get out of billy mode Mm -hmm. and no one's just being able to catch up with him because he's a bit of a tasmanian devil as it were crawling up windows and into attics making Mm -hmm. phone calls maybe this is just like what he does every day or yeah he could be a a near mute when he's not having an episode like Mm -hmm. it's impossible to tell but he did get down the street and in the window somehow so without drawing any attention to
0: himself you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. so
1: He is able to creep around the house without having an
0: outburst. He does have enough presence of mind to hide within that house because there's a wonderful sense of people not really being able to tell where he is. And the first victim, Claire Harrison, just leaving the party while Miss Mac shows up and and all the girls are downstairs just, you know, clamoring away at at their Christmas gift to her. And she's just getting ready to go, getting ready to go home. And as she walks towards her closet in this wonderful uh, scene, she thinks it might be the cat. She thinks it might be something. She knows something is there. There's something wrong. And we can see from the POV angles and plus this very creepy uh, shot of the hand through this plastic bag. It's like those... um, dry cleaner bags yeah for
1: garment bag of garment some bags sort. yeah
0: and sure enough she walks too close to it and like a fucking venus flytrap, this guy just springs into action smothers her and this is what starts the most iconic not death but cadaver, cadaver. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. the the famous fa- it's on posters it, it has become like the quintessential like the phone like the shot of billy's eye later on in the film this image of a woman with a plastic bag strapped tight around her face with her mouth agape sitting in a rocking chair yeah that has become an iconic imagery of horror
1: it's the here's johnny of black christmas
0: oh absolutely yeah
1: Definitely. And
0: and even though Claire Harrison is only afforded one scene, in my opinion, she's given lots of scenes where she is playing the most famous body in horror.
1: Pretty much, yeah. And she's mentioned in almost every scene. Mm-hmm. And we go back to her many, many times. So
0: Absolutely. she really is
1: the starring Raw.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is really, really cool.
1: Yeah, it's a great throwback in a way to Psycho too, because it is a body in a chair in a rocking chair which is just kind of precious.
0: Isn't it? Claire Harrison played by Lynn Griffin. I just want to make sure that we're acknowledging the actress that brought this character to life, ironically.
1: Yeah, because we're going to go on about <laughs> Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder. Yeah, yeah, until yeah. Until the cows come home.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I just want to give credit where credit's due because th- this is a very underrated but spectacular performance because... As we said, we've seen it before. We've seen bodies, We and it's hard. Try to have your actor not breathe, not blink, not move, and keep the camera fixated on them while... They're moving. How many people are in the crew that are moving behind them? It's hard.
1: And we go back to her a lot, and she's not a prop. She's not a a corpse, you know? She's not a a dead thing playing a dead body. She's a live person. So yeah, that's, yeah, really brilliant stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Really heart-wrenching stuff, too, if you got your emotions switched on, which I normally don't. But it does get to with the the father, and I wish in a way he would have been cast... With somebody who is capable of pulling your heartstrings, because he does come across as a bit of a cartoon character. He's he's
0: very Wiener Dad.
1: Yeah, he's very Wiener Dad.
0: But, but I think what this film does is garner so much sympathy for Billy. For, no, for maybe for you, but I like and look, I'm not like I do have sympathy for Billy because. To have that type of torment and mental illness going on in your mind has got to be a fucking nightmare. And I definitely get a sense of this killer that he, it's a compulsion. I don't feel like he wants to do this. I don't think he's getting pleasure out of doing this. And we have examples about why that might be so.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But, but it's just these, these, these characters are so sweet and so innocent and it's, you know, it's Christmas time and he's come to pick up his daughter, and he's waiting and waiting as a snowball in the face. And then eventually he asks for a little bit of help to go to the house, the, the sorority house itself, because maybe she's forgotten or she's held up, or who knows? Yeah. So he shows up and he's trying to do his best to not alarm himself, not to seem frazzled himself, but th- at the end of the day, his daughter's missing. And It's supposed to be a time where you're picking up your daughter to go home for the holidays. It's supposed to be a fun time. The the again going back to the subversive nature of liking this film so much, it takes something that's supposed to be you know holly jolly Christmas and turning it on on itself. So when he arrives to the house and everyone has that mentality of nothing is wrong, she's probably off with a boyfriend. That uh, and it's but there's something that's off about it because Claire definitely seems like the more innocent of this group of women. I mean, these women have lived. They they are sexually active. They smoke and drink and, and, and cuss. And it's just, it's a, it's a group full of modern women. So it's not this idea of like, oh, we're so chaste and we're so innocent. They're very real, just like anybody else.
1: Yeah, they have very full lives. Uh, Claire, on the other hand, does seem to be the most young and she's more interested in uh, spending time with family spending time alone and being safe and you know mm-hmm. she has a boyfriend and and stuff but yeah. he doesn't seem to be as as present as the other ones so yeah. it's
0: and 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 even margot kidder's character of barb so i know a virgin when i see one you know th- that type of thing
1: which leads me to believe that barb herself is a virgin i really <laughs> do even when she's going on about dicks and stuff She um, has, there's cherries on her shirt, Mm -hmm. if you want to get into symbolism here. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why she's so fixated on talking to older gentlemen about fellatio, things that she doesn't really know about. It's a lot, reminds me a lot of like when a little kid learns about sex, it's all they can fucking talk Mm -hmm.
0: about. She's constantly trying to get the upper hand by making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: really, really think that Barb's a virgin.
0: Yeah. If it was a dude talking about sex that much, I definitely would have the instantaneous thought, this guy has never had sex. Yeah. Because like well, I find that the more uh, my male friends, especially when we were all in high school, talked about sex, meh, it was the quiet ones that didn't that didn't want you to know that they were having sex. It, but the people that talked about sex all the time, I was like, that guy has never seen anything anyone naked
1: (laughs) Jess is nice and quiet we know she's had sex
0: oh yeah Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm positive Barb's a virgin but if she can know a virgin when she sees one that sort of line's been dropped in a lot of movies where the person turns out to be a virgin
0: Mm -hmm. definitely so we can smell our own type thing
1: yeah I think that's what's happening
0: as the girls are trying to get ready for the holidays And a lot of the houses left. I mean, this is a sorority that was packed with with women. Now we're pretty much down to our core cast. Everyone else has kind of gone home for the holidays. But there's a lot of people sticking around because Mr. Harrison is here and he's trying to find his daughter. And maybe she's with the boyfriend. She's stacking up with somebody. We don't know.
1: They're somewhat worried. And I've been listening to a lot of the CBC podcast, Missing and Murdered, where they talk about um, some of the um, Highway of Tears victims and stuff like that. It's about a missing girl, um, Alberta williams a really really good podcast if you're interested in tuning into true crime but it seems to be what happens 900 of the time 60 percent of the time it works all the time
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what seems to happen you know 90 percent of the time someone reports a missing girl and they say oh she's just out with friends oh she's with a guy oh she'll come back where everyone maintains this is not like her Mm-hmm. So it takes a bit, like Mrs. Mack doesn't get too concerned for whatever reason. If anyone should know this girl, it's her housemistress.
0: Well, she's also juiced up on Wacko. Oh
1: yeah, you're right. She's drunk out of her mind on Sherry all day long.
0: She's Fucking rinsing her mouth out with Sherry from a toilet. She has it in the bookshelf under B for booze. Why do you feel like she hides that shit like she's Batman? I don't know. Because it doesn't, like like you had pointed out rightfully so, she is surrounded by women who are just openly drinking. Margot Kidder, I wouldn't even recognize her if she didn't have like a glass of something in her hand.
1: Not in this movie. No, I know. And like the house is pretty loose, pretty seventies, pretty free thinking, pretty free loving. There's, you know, peace signs with people fucking on them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like it's a really Granny's flipping off. Yeah she doesn't need to maintain this i'm the super matron adult here and Mm -hmm. no one can think ill of me they wouldn't if they saw her
0: drinking even
1: with the amount that she's drinking
0: yeah this is like the hardcore r-rated facts of life i always wanted as a kid seems to
1: be but you know it does serve for some some comedic beats
0: Oh, yeah, for for sure. And I think the comedic beats are actually pretty strong in this film. I think they're pretty funny. I know some people I've heard in the past complain about how they're kind of goofy and offbeat. I don't agree. I think they're pretty great. And I think that they also really hit harder because so many times that very light scenes are happening or you have this whole scene where Mr. Harrison and Mrs. Mack are going to the house together and she's trying to hide – some of the more sexual or controversial things and the idea that she, uh, Claire was dating a boy that her father had nothing, had no knowledge about. And, and it's almost sitcom-y like where you're trying to get this old stodgy guy out of here. Meanwhile, she's super stressed out because of the fact that this guy is here and maybe he's suggesting that she's not doing that good of a job because he even threatens to say, I'm going to do something about this, by the way. I don't like this. Yeah, the way the house is. Yeah, like... the way the house is. And, you know, she even has this weird offbeat scene where she's looking for her cat and, you know, complaining about the fact that these women would climb the Leaning Tower of Pisa if they could, right? Just indicating that they're just a bunch of horn dogs, and she can't actually be expected to keep them from having sex and meeting boys and – and, and basically partying and doing everything that they want. And by the time they leave the house, we pan up back up to that attic and we see Claire bagged up again.
1: Yeah, which is a nice bookend. You know, we've got these kind of goofy comedic beats, which I don't think are too bad, actually. Anyone that would complain about the comedy and this being goofy, I'm like... There's 10 other horror movies with comedy in them for no stupid reason mm-hmm. that is way goofier. I really enjoy what comedy there is in this and that it's bookended with a girl wrapped in plastic in the attic. Um, this is the second time that the cat gets blamed for all the noise in the house because mm-hmm. you can sort of hear creaking from the attic. And Miss Mac before she leaves, is yelling at the cat. And it becomes one of those comedic scenes between her and Mr. Harrison. Um, I think the cat's name's Clark Kent. It's Claude? Is it Claude? I
0: think it's Claude. Well,
1: there's one part where she—I swear she says, "Oh, Clark Kent, you're going to be the death of me," <laughs> or "If I find you, I'm going to kill you." People threaten to kill each other a lot in this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. But then she starts. It seemed that she was calling it Claude as well, and I was going to ask while we're watching it. Like, I swear she said Clark Kent. <laughs> I swear to God.
0: Clark cat, maybe. Clark
1: cat. Claude cat. Yeah, that poor cat gets a lot of blame for
0: this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is yeah. a meowy little bastard, though, so.
1: A meowy-lucky little bastard, too. <laughs> but if only the cat could talk, he could fill them in on what's going on in this fucking house. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Especially that disturbing scene where, where he's licking the bag. Yeah. yeah it's kind of hilarious. It's pretty hilarious, but it's also really weird. Yeah. As they go to the police station, uh, which is one of my favorite scenes, because not only is, is Barb just kicking ass and taking names with all the shit that she's saying. She also cracks Labat 50. Yeah. Yeah. That was my daddy's beer. That yeah. was his brand of beer. Yeah. And so it's just so funny that like this film really reminds me of him. And... So
1: not only has it fed the habits of horror filmmakers it might have fed the habits of your father
0: maybe he was like oh 50 i could just see him back in 1974 thinking seeing margot kidder crack a beer out of her pocket in a police station that happens to be a labat 50 and maybe from that day forward he's like good enough for margot kidder good enough for me
1: i like the scene in the in the police station but it does feed a little more of that Well, we're not going to really do anything about this missing girl.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, we're going back to ineffectual police, particularly that one officer who's like a fucking Keystone cop type guy, right? And it's not until the involvement of John Saxon's character, who's basically running the whole show, the sheriff or the chief of police or however you want to call it, Mm -hmm. until things get serious. Because when we first meet John Saxon's character, he is dealing with a woman who's bereft because – her 13-year-old daughter, Janice, has gone missing. And this isn't the first time that we've heard about something kind of scary going on in this town. We know that uh, not too long ago, a rape occurred. And people kind of dismiss it. So we don't know if this could be the same killer. And we're talking about escalation here. Billy doesn't demonstrate anything overtly sexual aside from saying sexual things it's not like he rapes any of the women that he kills in this film
1: that we know of that but yeah, we know it, of. it seems that he's not uh, he only seems to say these sexual things not unlike barb mm-hmm. <laughs> we not, never not actually unlike... see having sex and she's not pregnant or anything mm-hmm. uh, but yeah billy doesn't seem he mutilates the bodies only a little bit mm-hmm. uh but it's mostly just throat trauma, breathing things. He just wants them dead as mm-hmm. fast as possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: things like that. Mm-hmm. He's big on the throat trauma of some sort, strangulation.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: But the cops are right to pay attention, mm-hmm. to connect these things, even if loosely, just in case there would be a thread. Which, yeah, ineffectual police for the most part. But at least right off the top, someone's thinking like, oh, these things could be connected. So I'm going to at least pay attention to them. Mm -hmm.
0: We know that there is a father, Mr. Harrison, at the police station, along with a bunch of sorority girls who are saying that their friend Claire is missing. We also know that there is a missing 13-year-old girl who was on her way home from school who never made it. And we know, I'm not sure if at this point... We do know the fact that at this point, the sorority house is getting threatening phone calls.
1: Yeah, Jess has a conversation with her boyfriend uh, Mm -hmm. where we learn that she's pregnant and planning an abortion, Mm -hmm. which also enters him being a bit of a suspect where every man is suspect. And that could be part of the fear that males get when they're watching this. Not only that someone could invade a home like this Mm -hmm. or fear for their fellow females being stalked like this. Also, that every single man is a suspect in Mm -hmm. this. All the boyfriends are treated as suspect, even by the viewer. Mm -hmm. You become very confused. The red herrings are used very effectively, where even to the point that a laughing police officer is laughing a little too maniacally for my taste, Mm -hmm. considering all that I've been witness to at this point, where I almost want to suspect him because he sounds kind of like the way that Billy laughs on the phone, mm-hmm. like everyone becomes suspect in this. So it is really, really terrifying that, and thank God there is one cop that also believes everybody could mm-hmm. be suspect. Mm-hmm. But then he mm-hmm. becomes a suspect in my mind, like in Eyes of War Mars. But anyway, we do just find out shortly thereafter because Jess, after having the conversation with her boyfriend peter where he becomes very enraged that she's going to have an abortion she goes basically directly home and calls the police because she receives yet another of these harassing phone calls Mm -hmm. so the police are putting all of this together there's Mm -hmm. harassing phone calls coming to this place there's a missing girl from the same place not far off was where this little girl went missing and rapes happening yeah it's worth paying attention to
0: it is worth paying attention to and i think that this film handles it quite well they add just amount the just the right amount of police procedural and you have one good cop in there to to make up for the fact that you know this one copy getting obscene phone calls we're very busy ma'am just to let you know And, you know, it's probably just one of your boyfriends playing a prank, which is another thing that I wish I had just written down on my laundry list of things that happen in slasher films. Somebody thinks something serious or uh, something that thinks that the warning signal of murder and mayhem is a prank. So that's just yet another thing that has been co-opted into other horror films whether directly or indirectly. It starts here.
1: One thing that's not normally found in horror films is a sense of community, too. There's usually some Mm -hmm. sort of social isolation happening, even vaguely, between Mm -hmm. parties. But this particular neighborhood is full of really good Samaritans where they right away start a search party. And Mm -hmm. I kind of wish that that's the way it was in real life when someone's pretty sure that someone has been murdered, that a, a true search party... Could be put mm. underway not you know four days later to scour a field where they mm-hmm. found the person's
0: clothing, yeah. but
1: right away like they do for this young girl that's gone missing. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, and so it comes. So basically, what ends up happening is when after this uh, a, a bit of celebration down at the community center with a bunch of the kids, from Marco Kidder is feeding this little kid booze. It's actually kind of fucking charming. I love it. Yeah. Uh, by the by the let's let's conservatively say. 4 p.m. Margot Kidder is drunk off her ass where she says, you're all blaming me that I drove her away. That I don't believe people were actually thinking. But she drops the idea that and if she's dead, you're all going to blame me. And that's where people kind of get shitty with her. Where And she's like, look, we all think that she's dead. Just no one's saying it. That's that ugly truth that You know, we've come accustomed to these women in this film being very progressive and very in charge of themselves and not afraid to pussyfoot around the idea that, yes, I'm getting an abortion because I don't want to have a kid and I'm telling you how it is. This two young women that we know have gone missing, they're probably dead. Mm -hmm. These like really ugly portions of reality that polite conversation might not have mentioned, but people probably found like these plot points fairly shocking back in 1974, I would guess. And from what I know of people of that generation who saw the film originally, yeah, they did find this quite shocking.
1: Yeah, and you've got a really good example of the way that some people think women should behave in the character of Peter, uh, Jess's boyfriend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Pig-headed. Pig-headed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Truly. Where he is playing the big man and telling her what to do, what to do with her body, what they're going to do with their relationship, making life decisions on a dime that she has to go along with because he's the man and he said so.
0: Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. And by the way, they do a fantastic job of making you suspect that it might be Peter. For maybe a hot minute, you might think that it could maybe, maybe be Claire's boyfriend. But that is he's like concerned he seems like a sweet dude. Yeah. He, he looks like he's wearing a dead bear on his fucking ja- on his jacket, but he seems like a sweet dude just likes hockey. What kind of there's no bad people he's like He's
1: so Canadian. He's
0: very Canadian. He's just sitting there playing hockey and 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 he is right there with Mr. Harrison with let's find out what happened to Claire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. and he's down at the police station. Peter I mean, he's the guy that's very, he has a, he's a pianist and, you know, he's got this audition and, and Jess maybe ill times the conversation with like, by the way, I'm pregnant and I don't want to keep the kid. So he has this audition where he is just sweating, freaking, he's bashing on the keyboard. Like, like, it's crazy to me how, first of all, it's crazy to me how, I guess, when the people are watching this, these three people watching his piano playing, they're like kind of arching their brows like, what a terrible job. It sounds pretty good to me, but I don't know what good piano playing, aside from like hitting the piano with your face, I wouldn't know what counts as bad piano playing. And uh, Oh, and, his timing was all off. And and he's just just sweating. And we're starting to see a bit of mania behind his eyes. And we start to think that well, this person calling themselves Billy on the phone is pretty fucking fevered and crazy. This seems kind of that. And if we're not entirely convinced, there's going to be another moment where he's completely by himself and he's going to use a mic stand to smash a piano. And if that doesn't scream just wow, this guy's got some impulse control problems. I don't know what would.
1: Yeah, total fit of rage. Moments later, he's creeping into the attic to go and surprise his girlfriend. Yeah. Because that's the way you behave. Like a fucking weird, stocky, maniacal creeper that just beat the hell out of his piano. And now it's just like,
0: hi. Hi, what's going on?
1: Yeah. Does she even ask where he came from?
0: No, but it, it is one of those jump scares where he puts his coat down and she's completely shocked. She had just gotten this really obscene phone call. She doesn't seem to really care. Now, the police are trying to trace these calls at this point. There are big ideas. They're going to put a cop outside. Because, by the way, even though this Keystone cop is just like very dismissive, once John Saxon's character realizes that there, this sorority house where someone went missing is getting obscene phone calls. Maybe it's something they might want to follow up with, particularly as you were saying with the, with this uh, community spirit, they do have a rather large search party that they go out on as Margot Kidder sleeps drunkenly in bed and Jess and uh, uh, Jess stays at home. Everyone else goes out looking for a body and they find one they find uh, the body of the young 13-year-old girl Janice.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, Claire's father is very, very worried about his daughter and his accompanied the search party as well, mm-hmm. just in case. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's pretty smart on his hand, but it's also like kind of heart-wrenching mm-hmm. when they do find the body of the young girl, mm-hmm. and the mother has a little meltdown, and he happens to be there as well. So he's probably pretty shooken up. They continue yeah. the search party because his daughter is still missing.
0: Mm-hmm. And if this is any indication, it is starting to look pretty bleak. So now the police have said, well, if Claire's gone missing, Janice went missing, Janice is dead. This house is getting threatening phone calls, obscene threatening phone calls. Don't you think that maybe we should take this seriously? And so they try to tap the phone. Now, as one of these horrible phone calls is happening, uh, Billy seems to have the presence of mind at the very least to be hanging up at a certain amount of time. I don't know if he knows, if he has the capacity to understand that they might be tapping the phone or if it just happens to be Rance Over, click. But they can't seem to get a trace. And while all this is going on, in comes fucking Peter through the attic like a crazy guy. And they start to have a conversation about a baby. And he's very like, I'm quitting. At
1: the conservatory and we're going to get
0: married. He and- wants her to keep this baby and he's
1: made no bones about it. And that he's not letting this conversation end either. Yeah. Where, you know, with a little more... 21st century mind i'm thinking this is not how this conversation goes the conversation goes with well that's your decision i can't be okay with it but i can't tell you what to do these are my feelings Mm -hmm. whatever you feel the need to do honey is the right thing Mm -hmm. and just let her be and if you really love her you're going to work on your relationship but now peter's got this 1974 attitude where And sure, there were many, many men that were very supportive of women and their decisions with their bodies, for sure. But he comes from a little older generation, quite obviously, Mm. with, no, this is not what you're doing. You're not going to kill a baby. And when all of this, you know, trying to convince her to have a family with him and get married doesn't work, he starts straight up accusing her of being a killer. That she's, He can't believe that she's willing to kill a baby.
0: Yeah. Talk about it as if you're going to remove a wart.
1: Yeah. And it kind of is. You know what? This medical procedure that's not too much more involved than that.
0: If I wasn't smitten enough with Jess because she's absolutely beautiful and that accent is infectious, her communication skills are impeccable. And even from trying to tell him to stop attacking her so we can have an actual adult conversation about this, and then to as plainly and clearly and sensitively as possible say that. You've had all of these dreams your entire life. And just because your dreams have changed, your plans have changed, I don't want my plans to change. I still want to do all the things that we talked about and all the things that I dreamed about for me and all the things that I wanted. So a baby does not fit into this equation. Not for me, not now. And so I want to have an abortion and that's kind of the end of it. And he gets real fucking shitty about it and says... As he keeps trying to re-engage in the conversation, she's kind of saying, that's final, that's final. And then he stops and just says, you'll be sorry if you do this.
1: Which doesn't bode well for us, our point of view as a viewer. Yeah. Because later on in the film, they sort of try and rule Peter out, even on the phone with the cops. The cops are like, hey, was Peter ever there when you got one of these phone calls? Mm-hmm. And he was. And she's like, oh, yeah, he was. But then you think about it, and you're like, he came from upstairs. Mm -hmm. He could have placed that phone call. So you get really like wrapped up in the idea that he could have definitely been the killer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they also don't really help their cause by the fact that after we see that Peter has left and the police have come to the house and they're just talking to uh, Jess about a few things. Well, (laughs) fuck, Peter's skulking in the bushes. Yeah. It doesn't really help. Now, we kind of skipped over this part, but. As they went out for the search party, Mrs. Mack did tell them that, don't mind me if you don't see me when I get back because I'm going away. Uh, she's going to good, she's gonna go f- family herself. It's, it is the holidays after all. And, of course, that damn cat starts screeching again. And then as she goes up into the attic, we have another very famous shot from this film. The idea of Billy holding this fucking hook in his hand that's attached to a rope. Now, you would explain to me what this hook might be used for because I've always wondered, why does this addict have this giant fucking hook on a rope there because as miss mac sees claire's body because she's the first one to go up into the attic all film
1: i even like when she's like i hate going up in this attic it's so oh. creepy <laughs> and it is but yeah once she sees it she sees the body is very very scared and looks around the attic and sees billy mm-hmm. who is holding this hook which i surmise is for hoisting furniture up there's quite a lot of very large furniture that they've hoisted up we Mm -hmm. had to hoist up farm equipment onto the roof and into the attic at my grandmother's where we had a one of the walls would come away so if we had needed it to hoist things up through the other entrance to the attic Mm -hmm. would have definitely needed a hook if we actually put stuff up there Mm -hmm. but yeah that's exactly what it seems before there's a lot of really heavy big furniture up there and That seems to be the only smart way to get stuff up.
0: Mm -hmm. It's very, very cool. This house is fucking gorgeous, by the way.
1: It's that big of a house that it would necessitate a giant hoist Mm -hmm, to get mm -hmm. furniture up and down from the attic. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I just love the look of the entire house. It's great. It's a real house that they shot in. And it just looks so cozy. And I even love the busy 70s aesthetic of it all.
1: And what did you say? It's like a Norman Rockwell painting. Oh, it's yeah. It's very Courier and Ives. It's very oh, huge yeah. manor Christmas. And I really enjoy the look of it. Yet with, yeah, these 70s things, this uh, black and red velvet drapes, I just I'm totally in love with. Yeah. And yeah, the Christmas decorations are tasteful. Um, I really enjoy the fact that they couldn't have shot this sort of film anywhere else to make you feel more at home. And the invasion is that much more severe because Mm -hmm. it is a manor home Mm -hmm. and something that you instantly look at and see safe, warm, secure Mm -hmm. because of just the splendor that they're living in. But to put these like free thinking young women into that house without some sort of dynasty uh, that they've. Being born into or something like that making it a little more gothic to keep it contemporary of course it's a sorority house mm-hmm. it's the best way to get sorority girls into such a splendiferous household and i really love the house in this too mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. it's huge and it's impeccable oh and it also helps explain away why they don't react to every single noise not only do they, do they have a cat traipsing around making noise and there's people in and out I mean, Peter just broke in and came from upstairs and no one even asked how he got in the house, how long he'd been there. Very, very strange, I think, to me. Um, as much as I would like a boyfriend to come down the stairs, all of a sudden, just <laughs> randomly, I would still ask, how long have you been here? How the fuck did you get up there? And what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, that would be really weird. But, like, it's that big of a house mm-hmm. that these things can just be explained away.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And after Mrs. Mac's death, that's where we see Billy have a tantrum where he's just absolutely freaking out, going on a bit of a rampage within the place. Hey, I mean,
1: he almost destroys two bird cages.
0: Yeah, almost. It pushes with one hand uh, a lot of stuff because you could tell at that point, I think the camera operator was probably holding the camera on their shoulder at that point because uh, even with the rig, they, there are certain scenes where the camera operator was allowed to have both hands, so it looks way more like an actual person moving around. Yeah, but uh, in these scenes, it's definitely like uh, oh, one hand, one hand. But and I honestly feel like it's that moment you would ask like, what, what? My interpretation of that, I thought I'd save it for the show. My interpretation of it is just he he doesn't want to do it. it. Like and and so as this person invades his little attic space, which he's kind of envisioning as his kingdom i suppose yeah his little personal psyche bubble yeah and he's killed again and it's just like this compulsion that he cannot stop himself from doing and i genuinely don't think he like i said that he gets any pleasure out of this i don't think he wants to be killing these people but i don't think he can stop himself Mm -hmm. i think he can't get out from under his own psyche to stop him from doing himself almost as if if it was a disassociative thing watching himself do this stuff and screaming no 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 why are you doing this what's wrong with you and maybe this uh agnes is a reflection of someone that he truly never would have wanted to kill and did
1: that's what i think as far as the agnes thing as well um that or once he did kill them whether he had any real thoughts about whether it was good or bad to kill that person or not, the hell that rained down upon him afterward. Mm-hmm. Because when he's saying a lot of things he's saying on the phone afterward, it seems that he's just parroting a lot of things that were said to him and around him mm-hmm. um, whenever this tragedy happened with whoever the hell Agnes is. Now, I don't really think that he's as mad at himself, though. As, as he is mad at other people for invading that space. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the reaction of Leatherface in Chainsaw, where... When he's upset that people are coming to the house, mm-hmm. he's not upset that
0: he's killed those people. That's no. just what he does. Yeah. And he's, and he's worried that more people are going to come.
1: Exactly. And I think that's a little closer to what Billy's doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's mm-hmm. like, oh God, the, 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 shit gates have opened and the shit is now going to flow. Mm-hmm. And how many more of them are there? Cause it was just after he looked out the window and seen a guy leaving that he had this freak out of rage mm-hmm. where I think he's worried that more people are going to come.
0: As the townspeople know that there has been a body discovered, there is still a massive search going on looking for Claire. There's people cropping in and out all over the place, police looking for searching properties. We get a lot of interaction from this community that seems to be a twofold. a community that is the fact that there is a college campus in this small town. Think of like a Queens University in Kingston or something like that. And then there's also townspeople that happen to actually live here. And so... It seems like a very rural area because everyone is just so deliciously, obviously Canadian. <laughs> they really are. The Switch so
1: Party guys are are quite
0: perfectly Canadian. Oh, my God. It's just the way they're dressed and they're, the way they're talking and everything like that. And meanwhile, the house seems to basically be under the impression that we have Barbara upstairs asleep. We have Phil and Jess still at home. Mrs. Mack, they think, is gone. It's really just the three of them in there. And when uh, when, uh, when Phil is still away during the search party or, or, or just out of the police station, helping, doing what she can. Because she's really proactive, along with Claire's boyfriend and Mr. Harrison, Claire's father, about trying to figure out where Claire is and just trying to be there as much as she... Uh, and
1: answer anybody's questions. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And she's, recollect she's what very, they could about her day.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that they need to keep emphasizing to John Saxton's character, the police, whatever, is that Claire was a really good girl she, she, she yes yeah, she drank a little bit and but you know she's not that she's not running off
1: yeah she wasn't dating anybody else yeah. guaranteed yeah her boyfriend has nothing to do with this
0: yeah he's and,
1: as concerned as we are and we're very concerned
0: yeah but I mean but the police really are just asking the questions are supposed to ask oh yeah right and then we have uh the death of the death of uh well, Margot Kidder's character.
1: So she does have this horrible nightmare and uh, an asthma attack. Jess comes to her rescue to feed her her inhaler so that she can kind of come around. And she was having like, you know, she sounds still kind of drunk, too. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people drink when they're stressed out. But she was saying, I was having the most horrible dream that there was someone in my room, which sets us because we know there probably was somebody in her room and we got some shadow play too following which is kind of tense because we're pretty sure we keep expecting that billy's going to jump out at any minute and kill one of them right on screen you know the way that slashers are supposed to mm-hmm. um but we've got this creeping shadow play instead um Jess tucks her back in and then goes back downstairs it's not long after though that there is an intruder in her room
0: mm-hmm. and this sets up a uh- another big iconic scene of this film. The, the image of Billy standing over Barb with his arms in the air with that uh, glass unicorn in his hand that he's going to use as an implement. And meanwhile, Jess is listening to some sweet carolers as Barb gets penetrated.
1: Yep. She really, really does.
0: She's stabbed multiple times. And for, A slasher movie, this is as close as you get as straight up slasherdom. This is a stabbing death.
1: Yeah, a stabbing, a bloody stabbing death. Mm -hmm. And a very cinematic and quite beautiful bloody stabbing Mm -hmm. death. They keep... It's probably the best unicorn death other than uh, Cabin in the Woods. (laughs) It's the only other unicorn death I can think of.
0: There was a unicorn death in The uh, Abominable Dr. Fives. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Yeah, I could hardly watch that. It just wasn't for me.
0: (gasps) Anyways, there's no sad faces at Christmas. No. Oh, yes, there are. <laughs> well, there is in this film. Most of them, actually. I have a big smile on my face.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it is It is a really amazing death scene. And the sort of death scene that you're pretty sure it's going to be discovered pretty soon, right? Because mm-hmm. she just, just went to bed. Someone's going to check on her any minute now, right? And she made a lot of noise. Maybe someone heard that and he's come out from the attic and back again maybe there's going to be a blood trail like mm-hmm. those are all the things running through my mind when after the aftermath of this death scene
0: mm-hmm. no but everyone's just far too distracted and even though someone rushes to the porch to get to shuffle the kids off because they had just heard that they had found the little girl dead in the in the park and that's something that's very good about this film is they keep having people did you hear there's someone died did you mm-hmm. hear that it seems very small town very gossipy and and it would be the absolute big news of the day. So everyone would be, someone died. Someone died. Did you hear that? Someone died. And it's, so it's really, really effective. And then from this point on, everyone just assumes that Barb is asleep.
1: And, and we ever need a distraction, the phone's going to ring.
0: Yeah. because more obscene phone calls coming in. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the police have tapped and have a phone set up in the station that is linked. It has no transmitter. So they could talk and no one would be able to hear them. So they can hear everything that's happening on this phone Mm -hmm. so whenever the phone rings at sorority house it's going to ring on the police station Mm -hmm. and the cops can listen in and they're trying to trace a call quite feverishly when it's analog technology, right? Mm -hmm. This is all cables and wires. Mm -hmm. There's no digital telephone system at this time. So they have to go and find what connection is actually being made. Yeah,
0: like literally, physically, what connection is being made? Like, it was actually quite fascinating to look at, uh, especially for someone like me that finds a lot of old technology really, really interesting. I love to see how things used to be done and so, to see what at the time would have been very matter of fact, technologically advanced, it's just, it's very dated now, but not in a shitty way, in a really, really good way. And this is where the uh, the police even start to suspect Peter because of the fact that there seems to be something that Jess has recognized in this. And this is where Jess starts to question how this person could know the things that they know because Billy repeats something that peter had said talk is as, as though you're getting a wart removed mm-hmm. and where's the baby don't kill the baby don't kill the baby yeah and and so she says oh my god and for some reason i don't quite agree with this decision because i don't understand why jess wouldn't just say flat out to the police officer because he asked her well, like, she's going to just be like, oh, yeah, that's because I'm getting an abortion. You know what? I, even, I, I take it back. Because- yeah. Even
1: today, I can't see a lot of people being that forthcoming with that information because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with their investigation. Mm-hmm. And it is her own personal news, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's her story to tell and who she chooses to tell it to. You know, that's up to her. And it's not really polite conversation. Yeah. And he has a job to do that she probably doesn't feel it has anything to do with.
0: Right? Oh, you're, you know what? You're right. So I take it back. Um, uh, yeah, because I, obviously I didn't think in those terms.
1: Except that it does sound kind of suspicious. But maybe she doesn't want to lead suspicion to
0: Peter, even though she sort of has because a budding suspicion It's around. funny because she's even telling uh, Phil... Uh, the only other person in this house with her at this point that's alive aside from well, we know who that she knows of. That too. she knows yeah, of. It's sort of sad. It, is that is like, oh, but it's I don't believe that Peter would be doing these things, even though Peter said these things. It's like he's so gentle. It's like meanwhile, I've seen Peter in exactly two modes creepy stalker mode and sweaty piano smash mode. This is not a person that I would define as gentle.
1: Well, then you got Phil, like Andrew Martin, and I believe everything that comes out of Andrew Martin's mouth. She said, you know, I don't even like Peter and I don't think he would do this. (laughs) So we're pretty sure Peter didn't do this because Andrew Martin told us so.
0: Yeah, yeah. It definitely seems like there are two different aspects of what this relationship is. I definitely feel like Jess is like, well, this is just... A relatively good-looking guy that I'm sleeping with in college and by after a little while Like it's not anything serious where he's just like I'm leaving the conservatory and we're getting married <laughs> look at my cleft chin and wavy hair mm. you really like Peter don't you no I think he's a fucking creep not good enough for a man I am though yeah okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jess is left to deal with all of the phone calls yeah. and the police because that seems to be what she's doing and she's doing a fine job at it phil is probably pretty fucking tired by this point having been out in the cold search party all night mm-hmm. um so she goes up one last time to check on
0: barb i had a hard time getting that door open jesus
1: well you know
0: and then almost like you're in a haunting movie the door just slams shut
1: yeah which is kind of freaky and creepy because we're pretty sure that Billy was upstairs, but it seems like he could be anywhere I know, at this right? point. And that starts to get really scary. Then you start to think,
0: are there two of them? Yeah, because we are hearing two voices on the phone, maybe. Two voices on the phone. There's creaking upstairs and
1: people getting killed quite soon after. Mm-hmm. Downstairs, or at least another flight down, because it's a three or four story house. Mm-hmm. But like, it starts to get really a little bit insane at that point. Mm-hmm. Even though the explanation is so simple. Unfortunate. But poor Phil gets trapped in that
0: room. And that's that we just see the door close. We're getting a sense of something very foreboding about whatever happened to her. And as the, the call is coming another time. This is like the calls really ramp up. And this call we can clearly see from our perspective that it usually the phone just rings and we don't see the person really dialing. This time we do see the person dialing. And we see that they're in a room that looks just kind of like a bedroom that might be in a sorority house. This call actually lasts long enough for them to finally trace the call. And while John Saxon and the other police are looking at this fucking smash piano, they head on into the car. They finally get a sense of where the call is coming from. And they try to radio to their police officer friend that they had stationed outside the house. We can see clearly this dude is fucking dead. Mm-hmm. And our Keystone cop fella, Nash, he calls Jess and gives her very clear-cut instructions.
1: He had been told, actually, to not let her know the truth, mm-hmm. but just to get her to leave the house. So mm-hmm. he tries pretty hard. Damn wily women, though, that want to know answers to questions and do their own thing, though. Yeah. He says put the phone down, get out of the house. And you know what? I don't care who you are. If a, if a cop calls and you're having this sort of night when they say, what I want you to do is hang up the phone and go to your front door and walk out of it. I would be like, yes, sir. And I would hang up my phone, go to my front door and walk out of it. Yeah. I wouldn't care about my friends. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. I would assume that they're telling me this because they, ha- they know something that I don't. And they say, no questions. Get out of the house. But she's
1: also being traumatized. She's also... Terrified, She is also cares very deeply for her friends. Mm -hmm. She's also had her head kind of warped around thinking this might be her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Like she is okay. Not a 100% calm state of mind.
0: So as she hollers as loud as she possibly can to Phil and Barb, who of course cannot answer her. Mm -hmm. She decides that what she's going to do is instead of walking, she's at that front door. She's at it. But she decides that she's going to grab a fire poker and implement a weapon. And she is going to head up the stairs.
1: Do you have uh, "inches from safety" on your list there of slasher tropes?
0: <laughs> I don't, but I definitely should have put "inches from safety" there.
1: Yeah, "inches from safety." What but I do
0: I- have—I do have—our uh, uh, lone female survivor arms herself and goes up the stairs as opposed to out the door. Yeah. Okay. This does not seem out of character for Jess. She is very independent strong uh progressive woman she doesn't like to be told what to do and she certainly isn't going to leave her friends behind she seems to care deeply for them as much of a fucking hot mess that barb is uh yeah you know.
1: i really enjoy both phil and barb very much and they would be excellent friends but you know at, with what's all going on this evening I think it's the dumbest decision. If she had just heard a noise and was maybe sure it might not be the cat, maybe a raccoon had gotten in the upstairs window. Mm -hmm. I can see grabbing a fire poker and going up and investigating your household on your own. But what's going on this night? Oh, she should have just walked out that front door.
0: That's true, but she doesn't. She goes up to Barb's room, forces the door open. Boom. We have our body reveal, two bodies stacked on top of each other. And now... We have, uh, as behind the door, who's there? Oh, it's me, Billy. And we see that close-up of the eye, and it is so fucking cool. Like, how his eye looks, like that weird red reflection yeah. in it. And you're just like, what's going on? Like, and, and the eye looks so fevered, kind of scared, and just, like, full of energy. And she slams the door on him he howls like a wounded animal mm-hmm. but what would it even be it sounds like some sort of fucking like sasquatch in the night yeah. some sort of like baying <laughs> he's every noise. animal
1: wrapped into one i know really, like a
0: fucking yeah. wendigo or something like that very much so very much so yeah and uh and and she runs and she manages to get herself behind a a little locked door and slam 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 and here we have her clutching a weapon as somebody tries to break down the door how many times have we seen that in slasher movies after this point zillions of times exactly and you know and 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 so again like i I don't mean to be like everyone's copying this and they suck no we i know you guys know that i love these fucking movies but i just want to make sure that everyone understands how important Black Christmases
1: And how well it's done. Even if you can go digging and find movies that did all these things
0: first, which there definitely are. For sure. Like we've, we've but, mentioned a few.
1: Yeah. This one's the probably one of the most effective.
0: Yeah. And again, like, it's not like we're saying that like, you know, POV shots and Psycho and Peeping Tom and body counts like Twitch of the Death Nerve and 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 going back to the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and all those types of, of, of body count type movies. But this is the stew that cooked them all together.
1: Yeah. It's the ratatouille it is
0: of them the, all. It is the ratatouille. It's beautiful combination of mm-hmm. common
1: ingredients.
0: Absolutely. And, and now we get a little bit of a fake out. Another fucking classic trope of horror. Where who's fucking down at the basement window? Peter. It's Peter. Because this is what he likes to do. And when he's trying to figure out where the fuck she is, what does he do? He smashes the glass. And even when he's trying to be like, oh. Jess? Jess? He's like fucking Patrick Bateman? <laughs> yeah. He does look
1: menacing and he doesn't mean to be, but we've also had a bit of a fucking head fuck pulled on us with this character, his character upon first viewing, of course, right? Mm-hmm. From the point of view of the first time viewer of this mm-hmm. film. um At this point, you're also thinking, you know, If it's not, because we've seen the killer is upstairs because we have the proof of the old album covers from Mrs. McHenry, Mm -hmm. who was Mrs. Mac when she was in her younger years as some sort of recording artist. Mm -hmm. And so he comes in from the basement, though. So we're like, someone is upstairs. He just came in from outside. Mm -hmm. They couldn't have moved that fast. But we are worried that this person can move fast. But we're very, very confused by this point. But then we're thinking, he seems awfully calm, and he was elsewhere. Maybe he didn't make that call where that person was crying, Mm -hmm. saying, you're not going to kill the baby. Maybe that was Billy, Mm -hmm. and not Peter at all. Maybe Peter really is here to save her.
0: Mm -hmm. We're not sure.
1: The doubts are so rife, and the red herrings are done so artistically in this film that you
0: Mm -hmm. fucking don't know. Absolutely not. And as Peter finally comes face-to-face with Jess... And just keeps encroaching on her, like, why didn't you call back to me? Uh, is everything all right? Are you okay? By the time the police arrive at the house, we hear a loud scream. And then the police finally get down to the basement, bust down the fucking door. And they we see Peter, and we see Jess, and we think they're both dead.
1: At first, At yeah. first,
0: but definitely Peter is 100% dead. And Jess looks like the, it has survived. It looks like she is fought off her killer and killed him.
1: Mhm. She's just extremely exhausted and probably extremely traumatized from having to kill somebody.
0: Exactly. Now we know that and then we're cut to the house is full of people and oh they got
1: forensics are going to have the coroner in and remove the two bodies from Barb's room, remove
0: Peter's body. There's the cop outside that's dead like, like they don't they they're they're and and so it's all about leave her alone get her some rest Mr. Harrison. Oh, he's passed out he's in shock it's just he's so traumatized the house is full of death no one knows where Clara is still mm-hmm. and that is where everyone leaves the room and we got one more one more eerie little bit of cinema masterwork to occur and that is the idea that it was peter he's like i felt it in my gut i felt it in my gut this whole time i just knew it was him there was something about it you know all the things were connecting about this talk of abortion and and his being so upset it makes perfect sense and then here he is and so they leave jess alone sleeping in bed and then we pan back up to the attic claire's body is still there miss max body still there impaled on that hook and billy is still there yeah just Fucking spitting his gibberish and saying... Rocking
1: Claire in the rocking rocking, chair. It's me,
0: Mm -hmm. Billy. And then we pan out from the house of Claire's bagged face. We keep panning out. Looks like a Norman Rockwell painting, as I said. Yeah. And then we're out of here.
1: Not before the phone begins to ring.
0: That's true. The phone begins to ring.
1: Unreal ending.
0: Yeah. And Jess really does serve as a final girl. Oh, completely. She And and she lives to see the end, but the killer's not gone. And, and, and so this film, again, that's another trope I failed to write down. Yeah. Fi- final girl archetype, Jess.
1: Terrifying. The um, vampire rapist actually got away with all the murders that he did at first and disappeared across Canada. Mm-hmm. So if he wouldn't have ever been caught, that would have been sort of the same sort of end for what i think is the killings that had inspired a story like this but it's something that sits very very unsettled in the minds of homeowners and young girls and the poor men that will be blamed for things like this that that person is still in the house and wasn't caught i guess you'd like to think that the police are going to be swarming all over this fucking building they're going to eventually find the other phone line they're going to figure out that there was some sort of party line in that house and that's how the calls were coming from inside the house there's seems to only be one other phone no one really seems to use any other phone among three stories that we see of this Mm -hmm. house so they're eventually going to be like well what phone was peter using Because, I mean, investigations don't really end with an apprehension or a conviction or even like the death of the killer. Mm -hmm. They still do investigate. So Mm -hmm. they're going to eventually make their way up to that attic.
0: And not only that, but it would seem as though there's just so many doubts that were left, right? Yeah. Because we don't even really know what happened between Jess and Peter. Did Billy show up and kill Peter and she scared him off? Did... Did Jess kill Peter thinking that he was getting too close and so took him out? We don't know. We literally have no idea. And and Jess is uh, barely functioning right now. Yeah, did
1: Beldi come down and kill Peter and then try to kill Jess and not quite succeed because the cops were inches away? Yeah. And jumped out the window, scaled up the outside back in the attic to safety? Mm. Like the weird little monkey that he is? <laughs> I don't know. It is a beautiful film in that way, That it does end on sort of that empty note. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's so very Christmassy. Just like Christmassy. No real end in sight and empty when you get there.
0: <laughs> well, Merry Christmas, Lydia.
1: Yeah, Merry Christmas, Wes. Well,
0: that's going to do it for our show today. Two things that I'd like to do. I'd like to let you guys know, if you ever have a film request for us that you'd like to do, just uh, send me a tweet over at... at West Dead Air Nipe on Twitter, or you can go to our Facebook page of Spotter Pictures slash Dead Air Podcast, or you can visit the mothership at splatterpictures.net. That's right, the evil, creepy, gooey, wet mothership. Yeah. And I'd also like to thank our good pals, the Painter Santa Plagues, for doing our intro and outro music for every episode.
1: Mm-hmm. Coming up next for our next horrible holiday horror show of doom my god i hate holidays (laughs) but i do love these two films black christmas was a real treat to do and next we're gonna do terror
0: train which doesn't get enough fucking talk hell no we are going to be ringing in the new year with the absolute undisputed classic that also brings to light one of my favorite actresses in horror The indelible Jamie Lee Curtis in what is considered her slasher trilogy, with exception, obviously, to her appearance in other sequels of Halloween. We've done Halloween proper, 1978. We
1: did Prom Night. Mm -hmm.
0: And now we are doing Terror Train and Holy Fuck, Am I Excited.
1: Yep. The inaugural leading lady of horror. I'm pretty pleased we're going to be covering that. Very pleased that it's a New Year's film. And David copperfields in it of all fucking people so (laughs) it'll be interesting that's for sure
0: i'm wes knight
1: and i'm typical lydia
0: and you've been listening to dead air Jack-o'-lanterns burn bright Most horrific sights you've ever seen Have a merry, have a scary Have a merry, scary Christmas week That's right! Old Saint
1: Nick is looking pretty sick Flesh falling from his bones Zombie closets stalking through halls They'll stop at every zone. Something to the whole most horrific sense you've ever seen. Have a merry, have a scary, have a merry, scary Christmas. Not this year, what did you get in your stocking, Sally? A separate Oh, that's terrible. And little Jack, what did say?